0: All Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very interesting and exciting founder. You know, we're going to be talking about being on both sides of the table, whether it is on the side of investing or on the side of building, scaling, financing, and all the above, all the good stuff that we want to hear. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Ryan Morris. Welcome to the
1: show. Hey there. Thanks for having me.
0: So originally born in Canada. In Toronto, how was life growing up? Give us a little of a walk through memory lane.
1: Uh, well, cold, colder than California. I've been in the Bay Area for about twelve years now, and uh, I don't know. It took took me a while to figure out that all the interesting stuff and good weather is here. But good uh, twenty-two freezing cold winters uh, in Toronto, and then the Northeastern College before uh, moving out to California and appreciating all the, all the great stuff here.
0: Now, typically at the age of where. I guess kids nowadays, they're either getting into video games and, uh, you know, maybe playing sports. You got into nuclear fusion and then also reading letters, you know, the letters of Buffett. I mean, that's pretty unique. I'm sure you were the only one in your class looking into this kind of stuff. So how did you get first into nuclear fusion and then also more into the business side of things of reading Warren Buffett's letters?
1: So I, I was definitely not uh, one of the popular kids doing the the normal fun stuff. So that that freed up a lot of time for other maybe more intellectually interesting pursuits in the long term for a eleven eleven twelve year old. Yeah. So for all the 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 nerdy nerdy kids out there, there's uh, there's a pathway to <laughs> doing interesting things as an adult. But no, it's funny. It's kind of a funny story actually. So there's this uh, documentary for those who are was born in the mid eighties. So uh, PBS had this. School documentary called "The Voyage of the Mimi." The Mimi was a ship, and one of the the cast, the captain, was a, actually a plasma physicist. And they would have kind of a show and tell at the end of every episode of you know how to be resourceful in nature or something. And he was a plasma physicist at uh, at MIT, and so they went and gave the uh, main character, who was this little kid, who would kind of ask all these uh, obnoxious questions. And it turned out that little kid was uh, the future Batman, Ben Affleck. So that was his first big acting break. The voyage of the Mimi so it's kind of a, it was a funny story that ties things together for that but um, you know fusion sounds really deceptively simple you know the Sun does it it works just have a magnetic confinement bottle and contain hydrogen and boom you've got unlimited clean energy so that was as an 11 year old uh, very very exciting that hey you could use physics to kind of save the world uh, and and solve all the energy problems. And so as I I got deeper into that, I was reading, you know, all these physics textbooks and stuff when I was really young and learning about it. It was all kind of exciting. You know, it was real science, but to me as a little kid, it was sort of like sci-fi interesting, as interesting as any sci-fi would have been, because uh, it was all new. And then I remember distinctly having this uh lesson from my my father when I was kind of two years into this, where he's like, Look, like even if you're the best scientist in the world, you can't just make fusion happen on your own. You have to figure out how to build teams, build businesses, and get capital to put behind these really hard problems. And that one I, I was like, uh okay, sure, so like let's look at the Forbes four hundred I think it was Bill Gates number one bill uh uh Warren Buffett number two at the time with Berkshire, and you know, so I started learning as much as I could about about business and you know how did these guys amass all this capital that you know if they could go put towards really important problems, obviously Bill Gates now was an investor of ours in turntide, so uh kind of ended up being an interesting closed loop with some mission alignment there, but yeah you know, that's what got me into again a deceptively simple thing Warren Buffett makes it sound like anybody can go you know invest as well as him it's uh, sort of it sound, sounds easy but it's a little more complicated under the surface but you know he's done an amazing job educating uh on the on the principles of how to think long term in in business and investing
0: so let's talk about rowing because rowing also you know has been something that has say, marked you and you know, training, getting better, getting faster. I'm sure that there's some leadership, you know, that you were able to get as well from from rowing. So, how did you get into rowing?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So, I uh, I wanted to go originally to Princeton because they had the best uh, plasma physics lab at the time, and I remember talking with a family member. I, I grew up in Canada, so like didn't really have any family in the U.S. or any knowledge of the U.S. colleges, uh, who are you know some of the best, the best in the world. And I remember distinctly a an uncle of mine who did know something about that. He said, you know, those Ivy Leagues, they like rowers. You know, that's sort of an Ivy League thing. And so I remember I, I was the only person in my high school. My high school is in Toronto, and Toronto has a Big Lake Ontario. So there's a number of schools that have rowing there. And I was the only person, I think, that went and sought out the rowing team. Normally the rowing team, at least in Toronto, because it's freezing. In the winter, they look for big guys that get cut from the football team. <laughs> uh, so I was like the only person who actually looked, looked for it because I had this motivation of ultimately going to Princeton for fusion, the thing I was passionate about at the time when I was like 13 years old, and um, ended up joining it. I was like the weakest person on the team when I started. I was like a little nerdy, scrawny kid. And by the, uh, the end of high school, I was the strongest and winning national championships and the kind of leader on the team. I would say there's a lot of things, you know, when you read about them, like reading about Buffett and reading about business, that you can think, right, I could get into this mode of thinking, you know, I, I actually knew something. And it's very easy, you read a book, and you think, oh, I know this stuff, I could write this book. Writing a books a lot harder than than reading a book. And rowing was that kind of, in some ways, rude awakening, for me, where it's like, wow, you really go put yourself out there in a competitive playing field. And you get to see uh how how difficult things are um when you when you get your your butt kicked for like the first couple years i was doing it even if you you know thought you knew something even though i thought i knew something about it um but then at the same time there's also this really clear pathway to have discipline and keep chipping away and keep improving so just training you know a couple hours every day you know accumulated over four years of having good discipline and you know that turns you into a national champion and so there was kind of this interesting mixed lesson of you know don't, don't expect instant gratification, but if you stick at things for a long time, uh, you can actually, you know, become pretty pretty world-class at stuff. So that, that was pretty formative for me.
0: No kidding. And that, and then you go to Cornell, uh, you did your master's there, and uh, you decided to take a year off. So why a year off?
1: So I I really like the idea of contrast. So uh, you know, there's there's kind of if you get stuck into kind of just one field and not able to lift your head up to kind of the broader perspective or, you know, the the context of where something fits in, I think uh it's it's hard to come up with really interesting innovative things. So, you know, I was doing Cornell problem sets like uh, all the other people there. It's like it's a great school in engineering, really, really rigorous uh, uh stuff there, Cornell. And uh, a couple of years into that, I, I thought, Hey, what if, you know, I'm, I'm in, I'm in college, like I'm going to, I'm going to finish my degree. What if I just go take a year off? Like some people take a year off after they finish. I, I think it's actually better to take it in the middle because you know exactly where you're going to be a year from now. And so you can take more risk. And so I I actually I saw this discovery channel, top 10, most dangerous jobs, uh TV show, like 20 years ago or something. And the number one was the Alaskan crab fishing. And I think that turned into its whole series. Like number two was forestry, which turns out it's really unionized, so you kind of need family to break into it. And then number three was oil and gas. So it's like, okay, great. Like, what's the most dangerous job I could go get? And I'm 20 at the time. So uh, in northern Alberta, in Canada, they kind of have this oil industry, and it's like minus 30 in the winter. And so I ended up basically finding a, a job out in the field, just kind of working around rigs and surveying and kind of in the knee-deep snow uh, all winter. And that was just a really interesting contrast to to see something again in the real world versus this kind of artificial construct of of problem sets at uh you know an engineering school. um so yeah I had had a, had a kind of unusual uh bridge crossing there where definitely the the guys the guys and girls I was working with were very, very different than the people that I was at Cornell with, so I just thought that was an interesting thing to see kind of a, a wider spectrum of you know things in the world.
0: That's amazing. Then you return back. And once you completed your master's, then you decide to start your first business. So what were you doing there with video note?
1: Yeah. So I uh, I, I had another gap year where actually I raced a uh, road bike. So I kept kind of the athletic thing going for a while with rowing and cycling. Again, just like not easy, happy-go-lucky sports, like all very much, you know, put in, put in the hours, you know, have your body catch up. But, you know, I was finally ready to join kind of the real real economy after... Figuring, okay, I'm only really young once, and nobody's going to trust a twenty-year-old running a business anyway. So I may as well just focus on athletics. But you know, once I once I graduate my master's, it's uh, graduated at the perfect timing in uh, May of 2008, as the world is imploding and all the job offers are being rescinded in the Great Financial Crisis for all the people who recruit, and uh, especially as an immigrant, I'm Canadian. So at the time, you know, the extra hurdle for uh, for companies to go get a work visa for somebody. Um, just made it, you know, that that much more difficult. So I had a lot of friends there who were really amazing, but I had to go back home to their own countries. And in uh, being a Canadian, actually, it's not even that much easier. Uh, it's still the same visa hurdle of wherever you're from. So I ended up starting a company. So it was one of these, you know, when your opportunity cost is really low. <laughs> it's not like I had some amazing cushy job, you know, that was going to be easy to get. And I was like, well, if it's going to be hard anyway, like I may as well just do this entrepreneurial thing. And I had come up a couple of years before with a, a business idea. And I think there was like an entrepreneurial class where we had to come up with a business plan and, um, and I had to miss class a lot because of sports. So I'd be away for like a week, you know, for some cycling race. And it was always really hard to catch up on all the, uh, all the schools. So it kind of, I started as like my own first customer in that case. And so I made this video note, which was kind of like an early is back in 08, where, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't easy to set up, you know, streaming video servers and like the bandwidth was a huge issue and, and databases weren't that easy to work with. Uh, but I was a software engineer. So I me and a co-founder whose uh friend is a PhD in power electronics, um, just as it happens, that was important for me later. Uh, we set up this thing and, you know, basically got it to work and we're kind of our own first customers. Really super hard first year, just like a lot of lessons, uh, again, of you know, going from like reading a lot of books about business to going and jumping into the the real world and having to sell things and having to build things. So that was a really good, interesting first lesson. So I guess I've been building companies now since you know, was it 15 years ago. So it's kind of jumped jump in first.
0: Now with video note, you know, rather than going, you know, the hyper growth, you know, approach, growing like crazy, raising money. I mean, basically you guys, you know, really got it to a cash flow positive um, approach. And, uh, you know, that was really the way that the company run for about a decade or so. So any thoughts on why you guys went that route versus maybe like, you know, injecting a bunch of VC money and and growing the thing like wildfire?
1: You know, it was it was a problem I was interested in, um, but it wasn't an area that I was like so passionate about that I wanted to go dedicate kind of 10 years full full time on. Um and also my co-founder, uh, you know, when he finished his PhD, he wanted to go work at another company. So I would say it uh it, it was it was a small company. It was enough um successful enough to kind of pay my rent for the next 10 years uh while well, I could go work on other things, I kinda had got it to a a stable place. And actually interestingly, there's another company that started by another Cornelian classmate at the same time, Course Hero. And uh that now I think they're a unicorn. So like he sort of stuck with it and has built a really great company. So um but just in this in this particular case, you know, it was more of a a project kind of in my mind than something I was super passionate about for long term. I was I was also working on on the investing and started this Maison Capital in February two thousand nine, which if you remember was kind of the bottom bottom tick time yeah. of the Great Financial Crisis, and so I was really passionate about investing in, some, in you know bigger companies and transforming, turning around companies was something I was kind of more intellectually passionate about. So you know I basically worked on VideoNote for a year and then it turned into kind of a passive thing. Um, so a lot of amazing lessons, but I think it's just really important to you know put your put my energy into where I was really passionate about something, and I would. You know get you know be Absolutely. able to be energized working 70 hours a week and stuff
0: now with Meson Capital I mean you you've been pushing that since ever since actually you know and, and and you've been at it now for about 14 years with this Uh 175 million in assets under management and really great uh, experiences too where you went and uh, you invested in companies and then also you were able to participate you know as part of the operations some of those companies like Infusy, Lucas Energy or Surfcon. Now, I want to ask you about lessons learned from being involved with those three companies. So, for example, with Infuse Systems, you know, where it was all about trying the turnaround. What did you learn about turning around a company?
1: Yeah. So, in, Infuse Systems came about, uh, well, so just for some background, so Amazing Capital, it started as a public markets fund. And, you know, it's, a, we're not, uh, typical kind of uh, fund. It was more of like a vehicle to go build companies. So uh, the way actually Warren Buffett started before, way before Berkshire back in the 50s and 60s is he had a fund and he would go buy controlling or influential stakes, you know, maybe 10, 20% of a public company and then go and work to, um, you know, improve the value because the management wasn't very good in those companies. Uh, or they're very sleepy for example. So Infuse system was a case where uh there's a big Bloomberg article about it in 2012 but uh it was very unusual so the shareholders were extremely upset. So I was effective I was an activist shareholder so kind of the I don't know the batman of the public markets going to ca- help the <laughs> the shareholders who can't do anything about it when their companies are sort of taken hostage by you know uh, not aligned or bad boards. You know it's it's kind of an edge case, interesting edge case in capitalism. But um so I I did that for about seven, six, seven years or so. And, uh, you know, I definitely was was really proud to be able to go transform a lot of companies um, that were otherwise on a path to destruction or decay. So the system was kind of on its way to bankruptcy. I was only 27 years old. This was 11 years ago <clears throat> when I got involved. And so very steep learning curve. And, you know, I guess I just got to see what it was like when companies got really dysfunctional and political. And, uh so I it's I sort of joke I like to start with the hardest problems and work backwards from there. So um there's a motorcycle racer racer Valentino Rossi is like a Moto GP world champion and he has an autobiography and he says in his first turn in a new vehicle he always spins out in the first turn. So he kind of starts with like overdoing it and then working backwards so you know <laughs> know it's possible. Um so you're not afraid of uh crashing. Uh I thought that was kind of an interesting uh analogy for things. But yeah, so it's kind of, again, I was 27, like the board was all these, you know, fancy degree, Goldman Sachs, ex-people. And, you know, they were all like, oh, I've been doing this since you were in diapers. It's like, oh, you've been like destroying companies and bankrupting them since I was in diapers? Like, why don't we try something different here? Uh, yeah. But just sort of having that, you know, really adversarial sink or swim, having to stay calm when things were really chaotic. I think that's that's always been a really big strength of mine. So um, it, was, it was a really interesting period. So I think that's one of just, uh being able to sort of keep your head while things are super chaotic was was absolutely an important lesson that I got to see over and over again and how things would get political. And I wrote a little article on LinkedIn how I, I said loyalty is the seed of evil. And what I would see over and over again was a couple things in these really dysfunctional companies. So again, I'm kind of like working backwards to now what I'm doing at turntide to, you know, make sure Charlie Munger has a funny expression that I always like as Warren Buffett's partner. He says, All I all I want to know in life is just tell me where I'm going to die. And then I'll just never go there. (laughs) So it's like work backwards from your failure modes and then don't do them and the outcome should turn out pretty well. And so I'd see these super political dysfunctional companies where things were, you know, really based on loyalty to individuals as opposed to like a shared mission or shared principles that sat above everybody. So it's kind of the, you know, rule by law as opposed to that you have an autocratic country countries versus rule of law that, you know, applies to everybody in Western democracies. Um, so that that was a really interesting thing to see and nobody ever thought that they did anything wrong. So I definitely came away from that thinking intellectual honesty and people who admit when they're wrong and make mistakes like that's, that's a pretty key ingredient because if you're doing anything interesting, uh, or new or innovative, you know, you're, you're going to be wrong. Like you're going to have to make mistakes and learn and iterate. And that's, that's really key. And, and nobody ever was admitting they were ever wrong in these situations, So that was really interesting too. Mm-hmm.
0: Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C, all the way to the end as an extension of your team and there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at Alejandro at PanteraAdvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Obviously, now you're on Turntide, and, and, and we'll talk about it in just a little bit. But I find that those two companies that you were involved with, too, I mean, both of them were sold, the latter served gone for $200 million. So I think that at this point you also gain the exposure as well to the full cycle uh, of a company, you know, going through the hoops, you know, raising money, um, and then obviously going through the acquisition and reaching the finish line. What kind of visibility did that give you into the full cycle of a business?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean there there's a lot. Uh, I mean Turntide have been building, you know, built more or less from scratch or from like a seed of intellectual property. Those other companies, you know, Infuse Systems the stock was a dollar and uh, I think it's about $9 or something. Now, I haven't been involved for quite a while, but, you know, we, we turned it around. So it was a little different in those cases because we were going from something that was already working uh, in some ways and really not working in others and then transforming it, but it wasn't like started from scratch um, versus the software company that started from scratch and obviously investing fund, which is sort of a business started from scratch. Um, so I, you know, I think I've, I've got to see you know, a lot of different life cycle stages of a company. So, you know, from the zero to one phase, uh, and then also what it's like kind of when you're more mature, but maybe there's some product changes that are happening in your in your market or in the technology that's capabilities that are happening. And so I I guess I've always been interested in, you know, where is there some kind of inflection point happening, uh, both maybe at the scale of organization. So, you know, going into companies that had it was like the founder like at InfuSystem, we had bought a company that it was basically the founder and 50 people so there weren't really any processes or systems in place to make that scalable um, and so seeing what it's like when a business is like that versus one that kind of already you know really has scale and process and how you can go you know build that up a lot of companies fail once they kind of or they fail to to grow once you get to that 50 person thing because it's beyond what one individual can really um, sort of hold in their head and manage. And so, yeah, we've, I mean, I've, I've certainly learned a lot from that. Of it. You have to really focus on what's the problem you're trying to solve as you scale the business through different stages. I mean, Turntide's now over 500 people, which is, which is bigger. The other public companies I was involved in were only up to about 250. Um, and so there's really different scaling issues that start raising their head as you, you know, as you get to those kind of breakpoints.
0: So then let's talk about Turntide. You know, how did the idea, you know, of Turntide, of doing, going at it with Turntide, you know, back in 2017 come about? Because it was not like the traditional, you know, you get an idea and then you execute. It was more, you know, doing, you know, some type of uh, transaction there, you know, with a research project of some sort and then bringing that to market. So what was that process like Uh, and uh, what ended up becoming Turntide?
1: So, Turntide has a technology. It's a super efficient electric motor, uh, switch reluctance motor that doesn't need rare earth magnets. So, I was while I was working on Sevcon, which did power electronics, electric vehicle uh, drivetrains. uh, You know, they've been doing that for for many decades. It's a very hard problem. I knew about from my educational background. And uh, as you're electrifying electric vehicles, there's there's a big problem of rare earth magnets. So, all the best, all the electric vehicle motors use. rare earth magnets that are basically all from China in 2011, which was not too far before I first got involved in the industry in 2013, China ex, uh, had export restrictions and the price of those minerals went up 2000%. So it was really scary supply chain stuff. Still a problem, still a big problem today. They're very destructive to mine and process. And so being able to solve this was a really interesting uh, idea and, and switch reluctance I've been hearing about from some you know technical people in the space 10 years ago. As kind of this next generation design that everybody was interested in, but nobody had really solved it because it requires really advanced software control uh to run the motor efficiently, and nobody had solved that. I'm a software engineer, so I'm always my sort of general philosophy on on building uh things is to say, you know where is there some hard technology that you have these predictable exponential price performance curves, um especially something you know compute or software driven you know those those kind of Moore's law like curves are a very predictable way to see what technology capabilities are going to be like in the future, and so we uh, started looking around at this. and I, I had this thesis that switch reluctance kind of should be the future uh, architecture that that can get a lot of um, of traction, and so I started looking around basically the whole world of like who's working on this, and nobody had really solved the problem like they'd made it work, but not efficiently, which is really critical, uh, and found this group uh, that. Kind of a, a science group that spun out of university in Chicago in 2007, and they were still working on it, trying to get this thing to work. And so by I guess 2016 or early 2017, I was in the process of exiting, selling the Setupon to Borg Warner, who's a big tier one automotive company that needed to get into electrification, as that was obviously where things were going. Tesla just released the Model S and was scaring the heck out of the entire auto industry. And so I thought, okay, if we can go make this better motor, you know, that's a You know, two hundred billion dollar market of electric motors uh, in you know vehicles plus buildings. So buildings, uh, every fan, pump, compressor, basically everything that moves in in the world is electric motor behind it. And obviously, electric vehicles is a growing area as well. Uh, So we thought, hey, if we can go solve this motor problem, get rid of the rare earths, that makes it a much more stable problem. You make the motors more efficient. That's a huge target. So we um, kind of created Turntide by uh, effectively buying the asset that these science group had been working on, and uh, turning it ultimately into a business. So was, there's was some technology that had uh, some really interesting IP to make it very efficient. And uh, the first product that worked was in uh, HVAC upgrade retrofit. So it was sort of like LED lighting upgrades, but for the uh, motors in the HVAC system for commercial buildings. So that was the first product that, that worked, uh, at least for a prototype in 2017. But it demonstrated that it, you know, the core tech could be made basically the most efficient production motor uh, in, in the world. So that was kind of the key thing. And then going and building a business on top of that over the last six years has been what I've been focused on. So it was, I think there was seven employees or something that were kind of working on the core tech when I, I kind of got involved to build it as a business.
0: And how do you guys make money today?
1: So we uh, we had about hundred million revenue last year. We, we basically sell systems based around the motors and power electronics. So the hard part that we do we are really we say we are software wrapped in metal so building software driven very efficient electric motor systems for buildings and then for electric vehicles as the other half of the company uh we actually hired back a lot of the key team that was with me at at Sevcon doing electric vehicle powertrains um after they uh, they left BorgWarner we hired them out of BorgWarner uh because they wanted to be back in kind of a s- smaller startup kind of environment where they could move faster and um yeah so what we sell uh hardware is like smart devices so it's kind of like the you know iphone of of motor. so it's like really intelligent software software driven um very very efficient and uh yeah building hvac and uh, agriculture hvac big fans moving air very efficiently uh, and then we're working on specialty electric vehicles so not passenger cars it's a very high volume market uh big big players in that space but there's a lot of specialty and off highway uh for larger sizes uh, like construction equipment, we have one big rail customer, Hitachi, um, and then some smaller things. So, like kind of two, three wheel, like in Southeast Asia, there's you know millions of those. And you know if you've ever visited Southeast Asia, there's a lot of little noisy <laughs> scooters, and those can't go electric soon enough uh, for local air quality and noise pollution. But um, yeah, those are kind of the markets we're focused on right now.
0: And how much capital have you guys raised to date?
1: So we've in total raised about four hundred and sixty million dollars over the last six years. Uh, you know my my partners at, at Maison, my people who've kind of backed me over time in previous companies were, you know, the early early risk takers there back in 2017, 2018. Um, you know, people now I would say are funding climate tech is seen as a kind of a new asset class over the last couple of years. But five years ago, it was not really something. I mean, Tesla really stood alone. I would say as uh, as a company that was funded in that space, like all the other early ones you know, really in 2008, there was kind of a clean tech 1.1.0 1. that didn't really get all traction. So it made it very difficult at the time. So I had to really bet my whole reputation that we could go, you know, make this, make this thing work, uh, which, you know, we're, we're clearly working on. We've grown, grown a hundred million business now and, um, and really amazing investors that we've accumulated along the way. I mean, I, I've, I would say been very strategic about what investors we've brought on, but you know, some, some pretty big names like Bill Gates, breakthrough energy ventures. Uh, you know Jeff, Jeff Bezos, Amazon, uh, the Climate Pledge Fund, Canadian Pension Board. So very, very proud to be working for all the Canadian grandparents. Uh, work, working hard for them. <laughs> uh, nice. fifth, fifth Wall now has been a, you know, very, very rapidly growing uh, venture fund, strategic venture fund in the real estate space. So they've been, they've been super helpful for us as well. And JLL, you know, big
0: property. And and in this case, how how did, how did you go about? I mean, obviously all these people, you know, incredible profiles that you're sharing here. How did you go about getting them and, and making sure that they were the right investors?
1: Uh, so I, because of my background, you know, I've been an investor. Uh, I, I kind of understand pretty well the different profiles of uh, different, different firms. And it was really important for me to get a very kind of mission and values aligned investors. And in particular, that meant really long term focused people. I mean, I I think long term, like I wanna go build um, build things that have enduring enduring value. And uh and certainly anything when you're doing hard tech like we're doing with, you know, really deep science involved with the technology, like those things are very different than like video note or a software company where you can go have a product in, you know, six or twelve months that works pretty well and sort of iterated from there. Uh, you know these things take many years like it took 10 years actually from the university spin out to the first sort of working functional prototype that actually demonstrated the efficiency benefits so so you need people who have uh staying power and patience so i was really looking for people who are very mission aligned and the thing that gets you through those long term is that you have a shared vision of what this looks like in the long run because you're going to have lots of problems and bumps along the way you know doing you know just like my kind of rowing example it's you know you gotta you know there's a training, you kind of lose, lose a lot of races before you keep getting better and better and better until you you know, can really win. And so, you know, being able to share that long-term alignment Like breakthrough energy ventures, for example, is um, most venture capital funds have like a seven year, seven to 10 year max life. Breakthrough is a 20 year life. So, you know, they are, they're deliberately set up to not, you know, not come in and pressure you to kind of, you know, sell way too early or you know, put short-term pressure when, you know, you really just need long-term, you just need more time for things to, to play out uh, versus I've had lots of friends in, in the Bay Area who, you know, they get a certain amount of time into their company and, you know, they're just getting lots of misalignment pressure from, you know, other other investors that might have different interests from them. And, and I certainly saw the misalignment of interests in my activist days with public companies where you had some people that were very, very short-term focused involved in the companies. And so it was was really important for me to get that long-term alignment. So from the beginning, I've been trying to build something that could really have a big impact, and we we found people that are very aligned with that.
0: So let's talk about having a big impact. Imagine you were to go to sleep tonight, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Turntide is fully realized. What does that world look like?
1: Uh, That's a really good question. So half of the electricity in the world goes through electric motors. It's a bit more than that. Uh, That's growing with electric vehicles, so really anything that moves. So, the vision of the future is that you have all the electric motors that are moving air fluid vehicles materials be the most efficient possible while using the least raw materials or especially scarce raw materials like special like rare earth magnets uh make those things as efficient as possible and then make the systems that they're part of as intelligent as possible so you can have like kind of the most efficient muscles and then the the brain of the system that's you know thoughtful and really ultimately serving people. So that means, you know, breaking down less so you don't need to take up people's time to maintain them and, you know, re- replacing repairing equipment, uh, and then making them run, uh, you know, really, really efficiently for whatever their goals are. So it's you know, really making these things efficient and intelligent is kind of the high level, you know, categorical um, picture that happens over time. And you need that because the world is getting the energy world is getting much more complicated. So as you have as you have more renewables, for example, so solar and wind are intermittent. And so you need to have, we're, we're not focused on the generation side of the problem. We're focused on the demand side. How do you optimize how humanity uses energy? And again, motors are like half of the electricity bus that gets used. So it's a big, big categorical problem to solve. But you need to make that more intelligent so that it can be adaptable as you're going to have increasing complexity on the demand side as time of day pricing, for example.
0: That's incredible. Now then, let's take a look at the past and doing at it with a lens of reflection. Imagine I was to put you into a time machine, and I bring you back in time. You know, perhaps to that time back in 2008, where you were thinking about doing something of your own, you know, a business of your own. If you were to go back in time and and have the opportunity of having a chat with that younger Ryan, what would that be? that piece of advice that you would give to your younger self before starting a business and why given what you know now
1: uh there's a lot of things <laughs> well as 15 years of of working at companies I've made a made a lot of mistakes learned a lot of lessons and but you know you uh, try to just get a little bit smarter every every day every year um, i guess a couple of really big ones are you know try and it's funny because i did this actually really well with video note but i i sort of have a technology interest background, let's say. Um, so with video note, I think that I did really well was I was my own customer. Uh, and so I would say just really, really holding on to that really hard of put, put myself into the shoes and empathize with the customer, the customer problem, you know, as absolutely deeply as as possible, like just keeping myself in that I think, you know, certainly with, uh, I mean, for example, turntide, like the, the seed of it was this, hey, there's this better technology, better physics, You know how can we go scale that, and um, you know if you can marry that with really deep customer empathy, you can build really great stuff. But I think that's something, you know, I've I've uh, I've I've learned now, but I probably veered away from a little bit back in the uh, the early days while I was focusing on all the other problems that I had to solve. Um, So I would say that's one. And then yeah, just uh, I mean, so much of it is about the people, right? So again, this is an area that I feel like I focused on, but it's like. Even more focusing on making sure you have the right people, values aligned, and also the right skills for the phase of the business that you're in. Like it's a very different thing building a company when you got 10 people versus one that you got, you know, 100 or 500, and the kind of leaders and and individuals you need uh, around you. You know, really, it really does uh, change. So, you know, keep keep zooming in, focusing on that. I think those are things that you you can't focus on enough.
0: I love it. Now, for the people that are listening, Ryan, that would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so?
1: Uh, I'm not really big on social media and Twitter or anything, but you know, feel free to you know reach out. I'm just Ryan at Turntide.com. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I think is probably my most active social social media. They've got pretty good posts Amazing. and I post some articles there sometimes.
0: Amazing. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for being on the Deal Maker Show today. It has been an honor to
1: have you with us. Yeah, thanks so much.